Hi, this is Greg Voison, inviting you to listen to our latest Inside Personal Growth Podcast, number 879, with Adrian Gostick and Chester Elton about their new book entitled Anxiety at Work, Eight Strategies to Help Teams Build Resilience, Handle Uncertainty, and Get Stuff Done. This podcast, number 879, is brought to you by Marcus Barr, the founder and managing director of Goalscape. I personally have been user of Goalscape for many years. I know the founder, Marcus, and the story behind the development of the software. In this podcast, you will learn some of the history of the software, and more importantly, the huge benefits that you can achieve by using a visual goal-setting platform. If you want to learn more about Marcus Barr and Goalscape software, please visit his website at www.goalscape.com. Com. That's www.goalscape.com. And now for our featured podcast, please listen to my interview with authors Adrian Gostick and Chester Elton about their new book entitled Anxiety at Work, Eight Strategies to Help Teams Build Resilience, Handle Uncertainty, and Get Things Done. Happy listening. Welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Voice and the host of Inside Personal Growth. And I want to thank both of my authors because this is a co-authored book. It's called Anxiety at Work, Eight Strategies to Help Teams Build Resiliency, Handle Uncertainty, and Get Stuff Done. Adrian Gostick is there on the bottom. And on the top is Chester Elton. Uh, for those of you who are, are watching this on a video, for those of you who are not, it's just audio. You don't know top from bottom anyway. Um, so it doesn't really matter that much. Thank you, Boya, for joining me today. Uh, one, Adrian is joining us from Park City and Chester is joining us from New Jersey where he resides. Um, thank you guys both. I am going to let my listeners know a tad bit about each of you, uh, just a little bit before we get into a series of questions around the book. Uh, just so you know, uh, these gentlemen are the author of eight, uh, well, is it seven other books, including this one? 14, or, actually. 14. Um, okay. Yeah, we, this is Chester. We just finished uh, Anxiety at Work. We've been writing together for 20 years, and Anxiety at Work is our 14th book together. 14th book. Well, you guys have made a good partnership. I can tell from the videos that I've seen, and I'll direct all of my listeners. Uh, all you have to do is uh, type in ChesterElton.com, E-L-T-O-N. You'll get there, and you can get to Adrian's website at AdrianGostick.com, either of them. I was just informed by Adrian that they now have uh, they have Elton and Gostick. Gostick and Elton. Gostin and Eltic. Okay, so the other way around. So you got first billing on this one. Gostin. Adrian always gets first billing. Always. That's the brand. Got, Lennon, Lennon and McCartney. First. It's never McCartney and Lennon. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. Well, uh, Chester has spent uh, two decades helping uh, clients engage their employees to execute on strategy, vision, and values. Uh, in a proactive, inspiring, and always entertaining speeches. He's number one best-selling leadership author and provides real solutions to leaders. Um, he and he, Chester has also been called the Apostle of Appreciation by Canadian Globe and Mail, creating the refreshing, refreshing, and by New York Times as uh, must-read for modern managers by CNN. 
Um, Adrian hailed as the number eight leadership guru and number nine organizational guru of 2020. Adrian helps clients around the world with employee engagement, leadership issues. Their clients, I'm presuming combined together, are like Bank of America, Rolls-Royce, Cisco, uh, California Pizza Kitchen, which is where I reside. I have one down the street. That's great. Um, Also, Adrian is a global expert on organizational culture and the author of the New York Times and number one Wall Street Journal bestsellers, The Carrot Principle. And when they say he is, they mean he and Chester. So both of them, they kind of done everything together. He's earned his master's degree in leadership from Seton Hall University, where he's a guest lecturer in organizational culture and founding partner of the Culture Works, which is their organization, a global consultancy focusing on helping organizations build high performance work cultures. Well, uh, that's a mouthful, but both of you guys have plenty of credentials. All my listeners need to do is go to the website and uh, check it out. That's where you'll learn more about them and go to Amazon, which will have links to the books on Amazon. So you can uh, click those links and get to them. Well, guys, um, you know, I really enjoyed how you started the book off with this story about the manufacturing company in Arizona that you were speaking to and right in the middle of the pandemic. Um, And I'm curious, you know, because we're talking about anxiety and to me, anxiety and loneliness and all of these things, they're not just exacerbated by the pandemic. But there's been a lot of things that are going on. In your estimations, how has the impact on the the productivity, which the numbers are pretty alarming when you look at them, but I think they've always been growing. The key is now we have a pandemic. We have people that were unemployed like crazy. Uh, We're going to get into the job security thing. But how is it really um, um, on productivity and the mental health of the workers today really affected them. And we'll go with Chester. He's raising his hand, so he's going to say first. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I just like to kick it off and say, you know, while there was a, a whole bunch of unemployment in different industries and so on, one of the surprising things about the pandemic is that productivity for those that were still working actually went way up, you know, for those that were remote workers. And uh, that actually was a, a huge point of anxiety because there was no separation between work and life. You know, your commute was walking through the door. And so it was very interesting that there was a lot of anxiety for those that lost their jobs and were trying to figure out how to pay the rent and pay their mortgages and so on. On the flip side, there was a lot of anxiety for those that had jobs that were working at home and now their productivity is sky high and yet there's no time to to re- re- refresh and 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 build that resilience but Adrian what's your take on that Yeah no it's a, it's a good starting point Greg because you're right we are seeing we're seeing impacts to um you know with this great resignation right now we're seeing impacts that a lot of businesses just can't even get started uh and though the people who are there are working actually quite productively, uh, but that's actually, as Jester says, leading to, to, uh, to, to any greater levels of anxiety because people just can't turn off. If they have a job, they have a good job, especially, they want to keep it. What we find, can't find, the great resignation is all actually about bad jobs. Uh, we can't find people to do things that, you know, to work in retail, to work in service, to clean, to do all those things. Uh, if you have a good job, you want to hold on to it. We can't hire people to do those things that maybe aren't as sexy. They're those entry level. 
And, and so that's the discussion we're having right now. So how do we get people to come, feel good about working, feel like they're making a contribution, and bring down anxiety levels? That's what we're looking for. Well, you guys, you know, you do an interesting thing here. You delineate between anxiety, stress, and worry. And um, these are three different responses because of, I say, because of fear. Um, I think the key behind most of it as an emotion is always fear. Um, And we have emotionally, mentally, and physically, there's an impact. And I like how you guys define, or if you would, define the differences for the listeners between the three of these, because I think it's important. I think people like to lump them up and they say, well, anxiety and doubt and worry and fear, you know, they're, they're all the same thing, um, but they truly aren't. And stress being the result of those emotions and how we deal with them. Yeah. And it's, it's a good point we're making here, Greg, is that, um, you know, worry is, you know, I'm afraid of catching the virus. I'm afraid I'm, I have a big presentation coming up. I'm worried. Yeah, that's normal. Um, and worry, stress and anxiety are all normal human emotions. So worry is we're typically focused on an individual or a single thing. Um, It can lead to stress. Stress is when our body starts getting involved. It's hard to sleep. You know, we're starting to, you know, um, our hands are getting sweaty. Stress is starting to affect us. And we know from studies over years and years that stress actually, if it is prolonged and never stops, can lead to some really bad things. Heart disease, cancers, uh, even full-blown anxiety. So we have worry, which is one event. Stress starts getting into our bodies. But when we get to anxiety, that even when the stressor is removed, we are still feeling the anxiety. Now, it can be one of two things. It can be an anxiety disorder that we feel all, all through our lives that people work and, and, and deal with. Or it could be something created within us, like PTSD can create anxiety. Um, stress over long periods of time, mini T's, mini traumas can create anxiety. We see that in, in soldiers, in police officers, uh, uh, firefighters, et cetera, dealing with trauma almost every day. And we're also seeing it in people dealing with this pandemic for the last year and a half, that it's actually creating full-blown anxiety in people. Well, it's interesting. Uh, I'm reading a book by Michael Pullen right now called Change Your Mind. And the PTSD, the guys that are coming back, the anxiety, the stress, whatever, you know, he's he's actually delving into the micro dosing of psychosyllabins to actually reduce anxiety. Now, I'm not advocating that that's what the listeners go do. What I'm saying, it's pretty interesting, um, the effects of anxiety on a on a cancer patient who maybe is going to die. Uh, right. And how, how do you help relieve that? How do you put them in a different state of consciousness where they can do that or somebody with PTSD? And, you know, you guys state that anxiety costs $40 billion a year in lost productivity, errors, and healthcare costs. Um, and while stress is estimated over $300 billion a year, you stated in the book. Um, if you would speak with us about how these affects on various generations in the workplace. We know that the Gen Z, they want to talk about it. I mean, I, I work with Gen Z. I work with Millennial they like to talk about it. When you get to the um, Gen Xers, maybe not so much. That would be me. 
Um, and so I'm curious because you discuss it in the book and you discuss that these generations kind of maybe flow with this or deal with anxiety, stress, worry in different ways. So whoever wants to address that, we'll go for it. Yeah, no, I, I'll jump in. You know, it, it's really interesting. You know, you talked about all the books we wrote, uh, you know, as the, as the buildup. Th- this book actually isn't a Gostick and Elton book. It's a Gostick and Elton and Gostick book. <laughs> We've got uh, Adrian's son, Anthony, who, you know, really courageously dealt with anxiety for, for most of his life and gave us that wonderful perspective. And I'll turn it over to Adrian uh, for in a bit to, to brag on his son and the contributions he made, because, you know, we are, we're, we are not of that generation. Uh, my generation, you would never talk about anxiety or admit to being under stress because of the stigma of you being weak or not being t- tough enough, uh, the fear of not getting a promotion or or getting a plum assignment. So, you know, we would um, tamp it down and stick it there until, you know, you wouldn't know that anybody had anxiety or stress until they you know, had an ulcer, uh, which wasn't that uncommon. But you, <laughs> but you also spoke about in the book, and I think this is important, that upper management people, and I remember the one story about the gentleman, it's easier for them to come out about it um, than it is for maybe middle management people to actually talk about anxiety, um, depression, um, their fears, uh, whatever mental health issue they may have. It doesn't matter what it is. Um, so with that being said, I mean, if you've got these not only uh, generational uh, divisions and now you have class divisions within inside the organization, meaning, you know, uh, high, higher uh, ranking people who can come out about that. So, Adrian, any insights from your son on being able to discuss uh, anxiety in the workplace and have discussion groups? <laughs> Yeah, no, it's it's a great question. You know, it's a big question too because we're talking about generations. We're talking about what leaders, you know, feel themselves, middle middle managers, etc. And so there's a lot to unpack in there. Which is, but it's important questions you're asking. Um, you know, just a couple of weeks ago, I was doing an in person session, one of the first we're doing, getting back to, and we we're training on anxiety at work, teaching resilience. And I probably had 150 <laughs> managers in the session, boy, and it was amazing how much they were engaged. And as we went around at the end saying, okay, what do you learn? What are you going to take away? Um, I had at least four or five people say, the most important thing, I've got some tools now to help my people, but most importantly, I realize I'm not alone. I've been feeling this as a middle manager, but I haven't told anybody. And so what's really interesting is Jester says, our generations, Gen X and baby boomers, we just squashed it, pushed it down. And the, yeah. and the Z, yeah, exactly. And so what we're getting into now, now with Gen Z coming in, right, and millennials, is that they're talking about it. So Anthony was one of the first one actually to talk about, we need this book. And he talked about this back in his high school days. He's now 25 yeah. at USC in his master's program, studying regenerative medicine and stem cell biology. He's not a dumb kid by any means. He's brilliant. And yet realized that he was, as he was working in labs and genetics labs over the last five years or so, he said, you know, there's some managers who get me as somebody with anxiety and some who just don't get me at all. And he says, I know who I could really confide with. Hey, I need a, probably need a day. Um, He says, there's other times I would work 80 hours a week and I would just plow through. Um, But we just work very differently, he said. So he really was very Open, and he started introducing us to other younger people. And what they told us, not just 
No, you know, about half of young people, by the way, in their early twenties, have anxiety. Yeah, full-blown anxiety. So, yeah, this, if you if you say no, there's nobody really in my family have it. You're probably <laughs> not seeing it. Well, uh, no, I I, I um, relate to that. I mean, my younger son, uh, my older son, who is a, a chief design engineer at a very big company, uh, has insomnia, hmm. uh, and the insomnia is worry. And, sure. you know, the company basically creates um, uh, programs uh, where they can go see a counselor about, specifically about insomnia, if you can believe that, right. um, which kind of surprised me. But, you know, they had a counselor. So, it, you know, you look at these conditions which are uh, being uh, exacerbated as a result of the amount of stress that's being induced in the workplace. And it's uh, manifesting itself in various forms of anguish, anxiety, uh, insomnia, all, any other things that you can do. I'm sure there's lots of others that we haven't named that healthcare professionals could name. Um, but it is a big problem, right? I mean, you're saying it's a $300 billion problem stress. You're saying anxiety is a $40 billion problem. I think it's probably even more than that um, in lost productivity, um, and other things. Um, so both of you, you know, you've organized the book to deal with eight leading sources for anxiety in the workplace. You know, um, the first is employee uncertainty about organization strategy for contending uh, with challenges uh, and how it affects job security. I get job security is a big thing. Can you address these issues? And as you stated, July 2020, 60% of workers said they were concerned about job security. Now, we're only talking like a year ago, right? right. Um, that's that's a huge number that are saying, hey, I don't know I'm going to have my job. And obviously, that creates worry, and that creates anxiety, and that creates stress. Um, how would you help leaders reassure workers about job security? And what are the six methods uh, to meet uncertainty? Well, you know, you, you jump in as it with any kind of crisis, you know, communication is just really important, you know, that you've got a rapport with your people and you're checking in on a regular basis. You know, employees want to know, how am I doing? How's the company doing? Where are we going? How do I fit? And, you know, the old traditional annual review is 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 so ineffective now. We're telling leaders and managers, look, in, in crisis time, you should be checking in at least once a month, if not a weekly, uh, you know, during your crisis, how are you doing? I mean, we had clients that during the crisis when it first hit in, in the restaurant industry, they were meeting every morning with their leaders and their yeah. leaders were communicating with their line people every day because everything was changing. So for me, it really starts with communication. And, th and that second part is very specifically, how do your people fit into the plan? Where are we? Where are we going? How are we going to get there? How do I fit? Am I valued? Uh, Adrian, you know, what would you add to that? Yeah, and this is a big question, too, on uncertainty, because this is the number one cause of anxiety for people. No question. And, yeah. and a lot of leaders probably listening to this will say, well, but I don't have all the answers. And that's okay. Yeah. And in fact, the number one method we present in the book is you have to make it okay to not have all the answers. But people have to feel like we're going to go into this together. We're going into the dark together. Um, and then part of it, too, is that some of us, in fact, studies show about more than half of us, 
when we get into tough times, we clamp down. We want to micromanage everything, and we want to, uh, and we put more stress and pressure. We learned this from uh, Nicole Malakowski, who was the first female pilot in the Air Force's Thunderbirds, um, and she told us when you hit turbulence as a as a in one of these formation uh, groups, she says you actually have to loosen your grip. It's counterintuitive that when you hit turbulence, instead of taking control of that stick, you actually go to just two fingers. Uh, she says, otherwise you end up in what's called a pilot-induced oscillation. You end up kind of bouncing even more. So, and she says, this is something for us as leaders as well. When we hit tough times, we actually have to loosen our grip. We have to trust in our team. We have to make it through. And so there's, in Anxiety at Work, we present a lot of ideas about just the things that Chester's talking about, you know, presenting clear strategy, letting people know exactly what's expected of them, helping people know you control what you can control and you have to let the rest go. There's a lot of strategies that you can employ. The worst thing you can do with uncertainty is just have a strategy of, gee, I hope that everybody's okay. You've got to do something. You know? <laughs> oh, I always well, I love think, hope as a strategy. I think hope is a great strategy. Yeah. Well, and I think your other book, uh, Gratitude is a great strategy. I sure. mean, you know, when you really think about it, um, if somebody can wake up every morning grateful for their job, um, they can be a lot more focused. And I find that gratitude does that. And it's a, a shameful plug for your other book as well. But the reality <laughs> is, that. is th- that is true. And, you know, um, you guys, uh, we've had a couple of people on the show. And one is Rita McGrath. And you cited her in the oh. book. And I just had Jonathan Brill on um, on his bo- book, um, Rogue Waves, Future Proofing Your Business. He's a futurist. You know, it's it's interesting because businesses today, while maybe before, weren't as interested. They had their nose to the grindstone in doing what they did, um, but really projecting um, what disruptions may come again. What are the disruptions in our industry? What are the disruptions that might occur as a result of something like a pandemic that, you know, people claim they didn't see, but we've known about this for a long time. Um, after speaking with Jonathan Brill, we've known about most of these things. He used a great example, which you guys will get, you know, the Titanic was cruising across the sea um, and uh, the captain had it full bore and it got hit and it all those people drowned and got killed. But the reality is, there was information ahead of time, which they knew there were 1800 icebergs crossing that area at that time. So it's like, like you're driving right into it. Um, You know, you would think that maybe you would have slowed up a bit. And I think that's Rita McGrath's point here. And you bring up a good point about the story about the Navy SEAL and Hell Week and the correlation with the research work that Rita did at Columbia Business School about taskers. Um, can you relate the story and the point you're making to the listeners about dealing with employees to reduce stress and anxiety? Because I think it's, it's really important. It's like, okay, we're going to bring all this down and we're going to get focused and we can, we can do what we can mm-hmm. with what we have. Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, it is one of our, our favorite stories really, isn't it, Adrian, about yeah. the Navy SEALs, the, the taskers and the optimists, you know, who optimizers, make, not optimizers. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, I think that I've heard it both ways. I like to think of myself <laughs> as optimistic. Um, it, it is interesting that, you know, when you can just focus on what's ahead of you, 
yeah. it reduces a lot of stress. You know, they, they do these running or they're, they're in the freezing water or whatever. And it's, I'm not worried about getting to the end of it. I'm not get, worried about getting till tomorrow. I just, I'm just going to get through this. And they sleep better, to your point about insomnia, uh, because they're not worried so much about tomorrow. And, and it's a hard thing to do because we do project. You know, we want to look for the danger down the road. And I, I love the, I love the task because it's been really helpful for me after we wrote that. You know, when you get caught up in certain days and you start to think, oh, this this day is crushing. And you go, you know what, let's, let's just get through this meeting. Let's just get through this. Let's get just get through that. And then you get to the end of the day, go, oh, it wasn't that bad. You know, we, we, we did it. You make a really important point. And I think what we do frequently, too, in our society, Western culture in particular, we identify, we use a noun or a verb to describe something, and then we believe that's what it is. So then we're walking around with that identification. You know, if you really want to get deep psychologically, if you're going to let go and release, you need to release the identification with what it is that's creating that. Um, but it's so difficult in the workplaces because that's where people come from. Um, we have these hierarchies and people move up in the ladder and that's the way it's supposed to be. Um, but the reality is that to, re- to eliminate the stress and reduce it, uh, you need to stay present. And I think if there's one thing that Rita McGrath is talking about is like, how do you, you know, if these taskers can just work on one thing and complete it, and I've even had companies I'm working for saying, gosh, we've got so many things on the initiative here, like 40X, right? And we know we're going to go to the wildly important goal. Well, what is that wildly important goal and what are we going to get done, right? And how are we going to accomplish it? And you talk about uh, in the clear pass forward, you cite uh, Sherry Sandberg, CBO, a CEO of Facebook, quote, leadership's about making others better as a result of your presence and making sure the impact lasts in the absence. Um, what advice do you have for leaders listening about becoming uh, great leaders and what I want to call instilling within others this autonomy to just be able to do what they can do and while you're gone, know that they can continue to do it. If you guys look at your list of companies from In-N-Out Burger to Bank of America, that's what any great leader wants to have happen. The question is, is how do you instill that with inside of everybody within the company? Yeah, no, it's, it's, that's a big question because that's what every leader is trying to do is to create this legacy that, that continues. It, it, it's, it's almost like spraying perfume in a room. It stays after you leave in a positive way, right? <laughs> <laughs> and so, so really, and this is what our work has done for 20 years here. We've, we've studied this and we know that there's a series of things that leaders do that, that are more effective. You know, they, they, for instance, they really define the burning platform for, for others around them, which means that they they talk about the competitive threats very honestly. The, and this is the reason why we have to do things the way we do. That that includes our purpose, our mission, our vision, but they put it in very, very simple to understand competitive terms. So that is really clear. They they are more agile than their peers. They're they're more customer focused, they're more transparent. Um, they hold people accountable, but they do it in very positive ways. And the, the, the red thread we found throughout our work is that they are more grateful. Um, the best leaders really take time to, to be grateful to their people. They, and gratitude's more than just saying thank you. It's actually seeing 
the value that's being created around you. So it's being more observant. So there are, there are steps we have found in our research that really correlate to higher levels of, of engagement with employees, with profitability, with customer satisfaction that, that really are inculcated in a lot of our work in anxiety at work. What are some of the questions that you would ask during these check-ins with these people? Uh, I know you've enumerated them in the book. Um, and I think it's, it's a very valuable point for somebody who picks this book up and wants to read it. Um, what, what some of those might be. Yeah. You, you know, it's really interesting. Actually, even since the book, we've uh, been doing a lot of interviews on our, our podcast as well. And one of the, one of the, um, ways to check in that we really like is, is uh, rather than say, hey, Greg, you're anxious, aren't you? <laughs> you know, <laughs> hit it head on that's probably not your best tactic. Uh, language like, hey, I've noticed, you know, I've noticed that you're, you, you haven't been quite yourself. You're always on time and you're starting to show up a little late. Listen, we know it's been tough for everybody. Uh, I'm here for you. How can I help? You know, language like that as you check in. I, I love that. I've noticed. And to your point, the message is that I care. You know, back to the previous discussion about how do you, uh, how do you, you know, protect yourself against the great resignation? How do you attract and then keep good people? Is they need to know that, that you care. And, and those check-ins around not just is the assignment due? How's the family? How are you doing? I've noticed. Let's just have a, a conversation, just me and you, really, really help. And I, I know we've got the list in the book as well. I think the takeaways for, for, for the listeners, if you just incorporate more of, hey, I've noticed into your language, I think you're going to find people a, lot, a, a, a little more trusting and a little more open. Does that make sense? Totally. I mean, I, I, you know, coming from my perspective, you know, I went back late in life and got a master's degree in spiritual psychology. And one of the things we used to say in the course was, you know, you don't have to believe everything you think. And the reality is, is that, um, you know, you get people making up stuff, right? And then beginning to believe it, and they get in a vicious circle. And then that becomes the result of their anxiety, their fear, their frustrations, their doubts, their whatever it might be. Um, you know, and, and I think that's important, uh, for people to realize is that the monkey mind is always going. It's always constantly moving forward with more thoughts and to quiet that mind down and to get very focused requires that you, you know, if you ask those questions that you just posed, it, it really brings a calming effect. Um, you know, we know all the answers within our side of ourselves. If we're willing to ask the questions, now you're prompting those questions through those check-ins, and then now all we have to do is think about it. And you know, you you mentioned in the book that a uh, common complaint you hear from managers is that many of their people today are conflict avoidant. I really like this one. Um, you can't be conflict avoidant and not then have anxiety um, or stress. Um, and then the other thing is, is anger starts to show up when you're conflict avoidant. Um, so they shy away from disagreements and they can't handle honest feedback and will not engage in tough conversations. Um, how would you advise our leaders who are listening about creating more harmony in the workplace, um, especially around this conflict avoidant um, behavior that you see happening? You know, and, and, 
conflict actually has a very important place in the workplace. Now, we don't want personality conflicts. What we want are debates over creativity. We want debates over process improvement, and we want people to be able to, to speak up. But with that number we talked about earlier that you asked about, Greg, with 60% of people worrying about their jobs, when people worry about their jobs, they don't offer up ideas. That's the last thing on their mind is to stick their heads above the uh, you know, the parapet and, and to see what's out there. They're, they're just worrying about getting through the day. And so what we're looking for, now we debate in every aspect of our lives. We debate politics and sports and everything. And then we come into work and, and all of a sudden people clam up. And, and that's not what creates creativity. So it's really important. What we find is low levels of candor in a team really creates poor performance. There's hurt feelings. People withhold their best ideas. So what we have to do is really set some ground rules for debate. Not only do we do those little things like go around, make sure everybody's contributing, fine, but I'm still not going to contribute if I'm not feeling trust in this environment. And so we as leaders really do have to set ground rules that say, here's how we're going to treat each other during our debates. And, you know, we'll, we'll argue the idea, but never the person. Um, you know, those little snide comments, they're never funny. We won't do them in front of each other or behind their backs, et cetera. Whatever the ground rules are, the genius is not having specific rules. It's having something in place that helps people know we want to debate. And here's how we're going to do this in a safe way. Yeah, I would add to that, you know, while most leaders don't want that kind of feedback loop for fear of conflict, employees want feedback. You know, I think our numbers were around 65% or something of employees say, look, I, I want to know how am I doing? Am I on track? Um, one, of, one of our favorite leaders, I was just on the, a video chat with him this morning, Gary Ridge at uh, WD40, a fabulous culture, tribal culture. We hunt together, we feed each other, we cheer for each other. You know, it's, it, it's tr- created a tremendous organization. Right down the road from me. Yeah, there you go. Absolutely. And, 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 you know, for those who I never leave home without it, it's my travel size right here. Um, The thing that he's done to encourage debate is he says, look, we don't make mistakes. We have learning moments. And and I think, you know, that mantra is, is so liberating for people to give feedback in the loop when something's gone wrong. They're not worried about being punished or victimized or villainized. Uh, for mistakes they make. They're they're interested in solving the problem, making sure we don't make that mistake again. You know, one of the great sayings that a- Anthony Gostick brought to us uh, in dealing with innovation and making mistakes, he says, you know, I, I'm becoming a scientist. And when you think of science, it's just mistakes with notes, <laughs> which I thought was such a great explanation of a, a whole way of being for scientists. Of course, we're going to make mistakes. Write that down. Yeah. You know, um, And so I, I think, as Adrian says, when you've got those kind of ground rules, when you've got that kind of mantra, because going back to what you said before, Greg, and, and I, I'm gu- as guilty of this as anybody, we get a wrong thought in our head. And the more we say it, the more we believe it. Right. Uh, you know, it could absolutely have no basis in reality whatsoever. We, through constant repetition, convince ourselves. Well, we live that, in the world of MSU, making stuff up. Then we, yeah, when, when yeah. The, then we believe the stuff we made up. When ninety percent of it, it doesn't mean anything anyway. So, but the reality is, we make up stuff. 
And then that stuff, believe it or not, can turn into our reality. And it cannot be the right stuff you want to bring into your life, right? And 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 it can be dangerous. I, I yeah. remember convincing myself that I really was being stalked by JLo. Uh, <laughs> I wasn't. <laughs> and it was very embarrassing in social situations. Yeah. I like that one. That's a good joke. Well, I think that that, you know. What do you mean I, joke? What are you talking I, about? I like it because you're the funny one. And I like the fact that we have humor because humor then brings up another whole issue. It's important to have humor all the time as Bernie Siegel would be, who wasn't, he, he was just on the show not that long ago. Hey, you know, uh, resiliency is important. And I re, I've for the last two years uh, consulted a company, 24, a life Mayo Clinic. Mayo Clinic has an app. And I remember one of the doctors talking about resiliency and not everybody um, is born with the set of resilient factors. Okay. And resiliency has to actually be developed. Um, And I think this doctor is absolutely correct. You know, if you came into a family that, you know, had all the right um, circumstances and everything worked out, you might be extremely resilient. I remember him actually saying that during one of the the videotapes and, and my visit to Mayo Clinic as well. And I, and I look at that and I go, man, is he right? Um, the reality is, is that in the culture today and what you guys are working with within anxiety, the best um, anecdote is to develop resilience as an individual, as a team, as an organization. What would the two of you say if there is varying degrees of resiliency amongst individuals? Some people cry at the drop of a hat, right? They, they can't stand it. Other people are like, well, let's forge on. That's a, that's a move for me. I'm going to actually take this on. Um, how would you recognize individuals so leaders could recognize them and help them build resiliency amongst the workforce? Now, it's, and this is really a great place as we kind of get near the end here to really focus in on this idea of resilience, because this is what we're all looking for. And you're right. I mean, that sometimes people are built into or born into families that build this with them. Other people are born into the worst of circumstances and build this up. So there has been, you know, a lot of very, very smart people who have studied this over the years. And and the, the trick is we don't really know why some people build more resilience than others. What we do know, as you just said, is we wherever we are right now, we can build more. Mm-hmm. And and so the for the two most important things we've found in our work is is the first one is this idea of mastery. It's and it's not mastery of everything. It's having a sense of control over what we can control and letting the rest of it go. That really actually and that's that's a big idea in one little sentence, but that it's vital to be able to control what we can control, let everything else go. The second is an idea of social support. Can I put support. in a crazy yeah, little plug, of course, Adrian? Yeah. Yeah. For all those listeners who have, have never heard George Leonard, because he's been deceased for many years, I had the honor of interviewing him. He wrote the book called Mastery, mm-hmm. and he was one of the founders of Estelon up in uh, the Bay Area. He and Michael Murphy. And not, there is not one better interview. I sat in his living room for four hours and was just in awe of where he came from, Mastery. And he speaks exactly about what you're speaking about. Um, and I think that book was the number one selling book around developing mastery by George Leonard. And so what I would say to all my listeners, if you want to listen to this podcast, great. Thank you. I, I hope you do. 
But if you would go back to George Leonard's podcast, I'll put a link in here around mastery because it's it's really really good. So I'd, sorry I'd to interrupt, to, but no, I wanted to. I would love to. I'd love to listen to that, that as well. Yeah, yeah, I'll send you the link. Yeah, that's terrific. And the second one is is social support. Now this is important because because this is what so many people miss. Only ten percent of their of employees say they would feel safe talking to their boss about their mental health. Yeah, that's a problem. Yeah. So we have to find people that will help us. And and most of the time, we keep turning to the same people. I hear this from people. I, I, I keep telling my mom about my mental health, but she just doesn't get it. It's like, why are you keeping talking to your mom about it? She will never get it. Talk to, don't, talk, don't stop talking to your mom. Talk to somebody else. Find people who can give you support. Coming back to our military idea. You know, the, the folks who help the, uh, the military members who come back from war are other soldiers, not therapists, not uh, senior officers. It is other soldiers. That's who provides the best help. Not that those other people aren't important in it. So you but have the to retribution find in the workplace yeah. too, Adrian. And that this so is a question uh, really also as well for Chester. Chester, I don't know if Adrian knows Quint Studer, but Quint just yep. wrote a great book and was on and we've been talking. But one of the things that was going on in our hospital systems, and, and this has been going on for years, is the retribution around the death of a patient. So it would be hidden. Now, I don't know if that's so true kind of up in Canada, but it is in the United States. And, you know, you've got a culture now that is saying, well, we, we really can't talk about this because if we talk about it, we have liability, right? And the liability is that maybe somebody did something wrong and this created the death of somebody, right? Can you imagine what pressure it is for a nurse or a doctor or somebody who may be attempting to work in an environment like that? So now they've started with these open focus groups to be able to talk about these things. And this has been going on for a while. But the reality is, think about that. Um, it, it, it's got to be extremely stressful. Any oh, yeah. thoughts on that, um, Chester? Well, yes. I mean, again, it comes back to have you created a culture where where you can discuss hard things? Right. When, when you talk about the individual, one of the concepts that keeps coming back to us again and again, as far as building resilience, is having, as, as Adrian said, a social network, to have somebody that's an ally. You know, we've got a whole chapter on being an ally in the book. The, the, the idea keeps coming back to us again and again. You're not alone. I'm not alone. There's someone I can go to. You know, when you say uh, people can build resilience, I think part of building resilience is having somebody that believes in you. I mean, how often do we hear about the athletes and the, and the performers and so on that come from just ridiculously negative and dangerous backgrounds? And what was the key? I had a coach that believed in me. You know, I had a mentor that, that told me I could do it. And it's so funny as we do these, uh, our our training around anxiety at work with with managers and and leaders, how the conversation shifts from, yes, my people are suffering, they're suffering, they're suffering, thank you so much, I've got tools, and then, oh, by the way, me too. You know, so where do the leaders go to have that ally to, to, to build it up, I think? Culture, as is as, as often said, culture eats, you know, strategy for breakfast. If you've got a good culture where people trust each other and you can have those hard conversations where mistakes aren't punished, they're, they're simply learning moments as they have at WD-40. And you've got an ally, somebody that you know believes in you, probably in many cases more than you believe in yourself. 
those are great foundational building blocks for resiliency because it takes away a lot of the fear. It takes away a lot of the stigma and allows you to ask questions. And the most important question that I think builds resilience is when it's safe to ask for help. When can you say help? And as I think, you know, look, and kind of summing up here, the what the Dalai Lama would say is empathy and compassion. And I think one of the best attributes a leader can have today is tremendous compassion and tremendous empathy uh, and understanding. And with that begets a culture that has less fear. Uh, And the reality is when you really break it down in some kind of simple terms here for our listeners, um, fear is the driving force behind anxiety and all of these other emotions that we have. And if you can remove fear from your workplace, I always love what Herb Kelleher used to say, you guys are culture guys. And, you know, he'd walk around with M&Ms and he'd hand out M&Ms to the people. You guys remember all this because this goes way back. But the fact that he just walked around and he wasn't even the undercover boss, he just wanted people to know that he was there and he loved them. And he said, and Southwest Airlines is about love. Now, that doesn't mean Southwest Airlines hasn't had their problem, but the there's only really two things in this world, love and fear. Uh, and on the other hand, if you can bring love into the workplace, and I know people don't want to talk about it because it's like, I don't know, this isn't a loving organization. Well, then you're a caring organization. How's that? Maybe just change yeah. the term if you can't use love. But I really appreciate the two of you. This book is excellent. It not only points to the issues that we're having in the workplace, but it also points to strategies to build that resilience, which we addressed as well. And not only individual resilience, but the team resilience and then the cultural resilience. Um, When you can get it going, that stuff, the uncertainty goes away and stuff gets done. Um, And the the reality is that's what this is all about. any parting words from either of you before we leave our listeners? Do you want to leave them with a, 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 t- a tidbit each? <laughs> <laughs> sure. Uh, my tidbit really is what we talked about earlier. You're not alone. You know, so often we've got friends and we think, oh, they're always so happy and engaged. They've never had an anxious moment in, your li- in their lives. Just remember that top performers and, and, and people that are anxious are really good at hiding it. You know, be an ally, be a friend. And if you're suffering, realize that that you're not alone. It's always fun when someone's got your back. I always loved the stories of Herb Kelleher when when people would complain and he'd, they'd get on his people. He would write them a personal letter to the customer and he'd say, I, I hear what you said. We'll miss you. <laughs> you know, be, and his employees knew that they uh, that he had their backs. So, yeah, be aware. People are good at hiding it. They're not alone. Be a great ally. Adrian? Yeah, I would I would echo that is that we've got to get beyond the fine. You know, we do this all the time. Hey, Greg, how you doing? Fine. Uh, we got to get beyond that. Really? Because I got so much going on. I got a little vulnerability in our place, in our, in, our, in our place as a leader goes a long way to be able to say, these are the things that I'm going through. The myth of the uh, infallible manager is got, has got to go away. We've got to be a little vulnerable ourselves and get behind the the fine uh, and really see how people really are doing. Well, it's a great way to sum it up, uh, Adrian. Thank you both for being on Inside Personal Growth. Thank you for 
your thoughts and inspiring words of wisdom to those that are listening to this about, hey, look, there's a problem, but we know how to solve it. And the reality in the solving is around caring and understanding and bringing more empathy into the workplace. And the reality is a whole big dose of gratitude, gratitude for what we really have. Thank you both for being on Inside Personal Growth. Thanks, Pleasure Dave. being here. Thanks for having us. This podcast number 879 has been brought to you by Jim Hewling, co-author with Chris Macheski and Sean Covey of the Wall Street bestseller of a revised and updated edition of a book entitled The Four Disciplines of Execution, Achieving Your Wildly Important Goals, Second Edition. In my interview with Jim, we talk about goal setting, executing your goals, and focusing on your wildly important goals. The 4DX process is not theory. It is a proven set of practices that represents a new way of thinking, essentially, to thrive in today's competitive climate, making this second edition a book that no business leader can afford to miss. If you want to learn more about Jim Hewling and his new book, that he co-authored, please visit his website at www.jimhuling.com. That's www.jimhuling.com. Tune in for more great podcasts from Inside Personal Growth, and thanks for listening.